what is joy? Is joy the feeling you get when things are going your way? Is joy the feeling you get when the paycheck's looking a little bit more than expected? Is joy simply the experience of when things are going well? Joy is much more. So we're quickly approaching Christmas. And joy is one of those words you see all over the place. So we're reminded of the hymns with a focus on it. So joy to the world, we're just saying that. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. So the express reason that it's so closely linked to this season isn't because of all the gifts and celebration, though that's a part of it. It's because of the advent of Jesus. He has accomplished for us, at his advent, access to joy. Through Christ's first advent, joy is available to all believers. So the world will tell us that joy is well-being, success, and overall good fortune. But Christian joy is much more than that. Christian joy is a divine gift that leads to deep-seated satisfaction and gladness in God. It's a joy that thrives in any and all circumstances because it's a divine joy that's centered on the character of the person and work of Christ rather than external circumstance. To have joy as a Christian is to be satisfied in Jesus despite the circumstance. It's an unassailable joy. Unassailable means unable to be attacked, questioned, or defeated. And it's an unassailable joy in Jesus. So that's the title for today's message. I got three points for you today. Sorrow and joy. Joy is from Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. So we'll begin with sorrow and joy, which is 16 through 21 in uh, John 16. Now I'm going to set the scene. At this point in the book of John, Jesus is having a very lengthy conversation with his disciples a couple of hours before his crucifixion. So this is overnight. And as in other instances, Jesus said something and the disciples were confused. So let's look at verses 17 and 18. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they're saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. So as good, scholarly, and well-read Christians, we can easily infer the fact that Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. A little while, and you will not see me, because his body is going to be lying in a tomb. And again, a little while, and you will see me, pointing to the glorious resurrection. So we have the privilege of being able to see the full story play out page by page but the disciples were living in this. This is the most significant day in all of human history, and they didn't even know. So here's what's going on. The man that they had lived with for three years, who they spent almost every hour of the day with, the man who they placed faith in, promised loyalty to, and served with an incomparable amount of devotion, He just told them that soon they won't be able to see him. But then they will see him. The confusion's understandable. And in light of their confusion, Jesus responds this in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, 
but the world will rejoice. Actually, starting at verse 19, excuse me. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you'll not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So in true Christ-like fashion, he doesn't tell them a straightforward answer. He instead gives them an illustration of what's to unfold. So this illustration is one that in many ways should be very familiar to us on this side of the cross because in many ways we're still experiencing this. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The moment Jesus was referring to, most obviously, is his crucifixion. His followers were going to weep and lament. So loud cries were going to be heard and tears were going to be shed. And at that same moment, the world greatly rejoiced because the man who was challenging their systems and ways was eliminated, or so they thought. So there are three ways in which the Bible uses the word world. So the world could mean the earth itself, its inhabitants, or unbelievers in their value systems. So the world that Jesus is talking about here is the third one. As I said earlier, we're all good, well-read, and scholarly Christians. I'm sure you knew that, but just wanted to clarify. So unbelievers and their value systems, the world, does not and will not celebrate or enjoy godliness. Romans 8, 7 tells us, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So hostile. It is at odds with Christ and his ways. So as Christians who live in the United States, I'm sure we could think of a handful of freedoms and liberties that are afforded to us that makes the world joyful, but makes Christians sorrowful. So just to rattle off a couple, we could consider same-sex marriage. So we're familiar with the great joy that happened that the world expressed as a result of that being accepted in all 50 states. And yet the way we see it, it is a perversion of a precious gift that God gave humanity. So in the beginning, God created them male and female. Just wanted to pause and acknowledge that that's a controversial statement. Anyways, he made them male and female. Adam and Eve were the first married couple. Their union and all marriages that followed are supposed to represent the union and relationship of Christ towards the church. So a beautiful and inseparable union. Same-sex marriage perverts and twists God's design for marriage. And that not only brings God sorrow, it should bring us sorrow. And another easy one to see is the issue of abortion. So to put it simply, abortion is the unjust murder of a child in the womb. The world rationalizes it by highlighting the many obstacles and difficulty in parenthood, and there are many. The great issue with it that it ignores is the fact that the child that is being formed in the womb is knitted by God himself. So Psalm 139, 13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
by God's infinite grace and mercy. We can see that there are many pregnancy crisis centers throughout the United States, resourcing parents and helping them in the process of either becoming parents or helping them find parents to adopt the child. So as Paul puts it in Romans 1.20, they are without excuse. So when we look at the world, we could echo the words of Romans 1.32. Though, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The world rejoices in things that bring Christians sorrow. And yet, Christ gives us a promise in our main text. Read it with me again, John 16, 20. You'll weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Our sorrow will turn into joy. And he gives us an illustration, sparing me from having to make one. Verse 21. When a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. All right, by a show of hands, how many of us are a mother or know a mother? Everybody's hands should be up. It would be weird if you don't know a mom. All right, put your hands down. If there is anything that could be said about delivering a baby, it is very painful. Or so I've heard. I don't know. Um, the hours of waiting, the contractions, then the pushing, it's a grueling process. Yet all that pain is eclipsed by the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Likewise, the sorrow that is experienced by Christians is eclipsed by joy, a joy that is from Christ himself. Now we're moving on to our second point. Joy is from Jesus. Go with me to verses 22 to 24. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. The disciples were going to experience great anguish at Christ's death, and understandably so. But he promised them joy when he came back, a joy that no one can take away. This is the joy that we are brought into as Christians, an unassailable joy. I learned this word earlier this week. I'm very excited about it. I defined it earlier, but I'm going to tell you what it means again. Unassailable unable to be attacked, questioned, or defeated. The reality of our situation is that despite us being invited into an unassailable joy that no one could take away, they could try and they will try. Not only do we combat against the world around us, those who would have us stray away from God and his ways, but our sin is the major issue in this fight. The heart is bent towards sin. And if given its way, we will lose against the fight for joy. And it's a fight. How many times a week do we wake up dreading the work ahead of us? How often do we occupy ourselves with complaints? 
How often do we see a comment section full of fights and contribute to it? Who do we think we are? More often than not, we're so caught up in everything that's happening in our lives that we forget who we're living it for. We forfeit great satisfaction and pleasure because we don't focus on the source of all satisfaction and pleasure. Colossians 3.2 tells us, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. If we spend time to simply meditate on the truths that God has revealed about the universe, about heaven, about salvation, set our minds on the things above, our joy could not be contained. Implied in Christ's words in John 16, 22 is a promise. No one will take the joy. No one. The reason that joy can't be taken is because that joy has a divine origin. So listen to what our Lord says in John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. So the things that Christ is referring to there is the fact that he is divine and we are the branches and we must abide in him, remain in him, find our sustenance in him and in his presence. And we find a similar idea of God being a source of joy, being in his presence in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There's fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So a reality that's often ignored is that through Christ, we have access to God's presence in a special way. Before Christ's sacrifice, people had to approach God through priests. So the priests were to continually make sacrifices on behalf of God's people to atone for their sins, to, to satisfy the price of sin. They were the only ones granted allowance into God's presence, the priests. So they had to make a sacrifice for themselves first and then for the people. But when the veil tore in the temple, when the Holy Spirit descended upon all of God's people, God's presence was made available to all believers without exception. It's all through Jesus, and it all points back to him. So back to John 16, 23 to 24. And that day you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will, re you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, a benefit to that access is prayer. Prayer is an essential part of the Christian life, and Christ tells us that prayer is for our joy. It's for our joy. We're specifically told that we pray in his name. Ask, and you will receive. Okay, got it. I'm going to ask you guys some questions. So if I pray for a Lamborghini in Jesus' name, am I going to get it? We need, to, we need to take a vote on this guy. All right. What if I ask for a new house? Am, in Jesus' name, I'm getting a new house. Am I going to get it? Yes or no? No, probably not. Okay. So what if I pray in Jesus' name for my credit card balance to disappear? Amen. Hallelujah. No. Okay. 
contrary to popular belief and charismatic spheres, praying in Jesus' name isn't a magical incantation or spell. We don't slap in Jesus' name at the end of prayers to make sure they happen. Jesus is telling us to pray in a way that is consistent with his character and his will. So imagine your job send you to an event, right? To those who are self-employed, imagine you have a job from somebody else. Uh, you're representing a company, you're representing your supervisor or your boss, you have gone to that event in their name. And that should change our behavior and way in which we do things. So likewise, our prayers ought to reflect and express interest in God's will being accomplished. 1 John 5.15 tells us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. And here's the true beauty of prayer. It's not that he answers it, though he always does. God hears us. This is so special. Psalm 55, 17 says, Evening and morning and noon, I utter my complaints and moan, and he hears my voice. Evening, morning, noon. That's all day. God listens to us all day. The God of the universe, creator of everything, stoops down, so to speak, from heaven to hear our cries for help. From cover to cover, the scripture points to this amazing truth. I'm just going to shoot off some verses. Psalm chapter 6, verse 9. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Psalm 18, 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Psalm 34, 6, this poor man cried for help, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Now, these are just a handful of examples, just found in the book of Psalms, but this truth is everywhere. And the most amazing part of this truth is we don't deserve any of it any of it. Let's think about it like this. We are sinners living in a sinful world. All the pain and suffering that we experience is a result of someone's sin or our own, even with things that seem entirely out of the scope of human sin. Earthquakes that destroyed thousands of homes are a result of the curse of sin. Hurricanes that leave houses floating away and livelihoods destroyed. Curse of sin. All that burdens us, all that things that we cry to God for, when we're suffering, it's because of sin. And God, in his infinite grace, listens to us. And he answers, and there's always an answer. Now, the time in which we get that answer is up to him. But let me tell you something, saints. God hears us. That should prick our hearts and souls. Now, we may get tempted to get upset or even get mad at God when prayers aren't answered. And I know I've asked myself the question, where is God? And here's the answer. God is in the place 
where Jesus was. Well, wow, let me rephrase that. God is in the same place he was when Jesus was crucified. When Jesus took on the full weight of sin and suffering, God is on the throne ruling and reigning. And he's working out his good will for all those who would trust him. We are all undeserving of the fact that the God of the universe hears us. And yet through the sacrifice of Jesus, we are given access. So what do we do in light of the fact that Christ has given us access? An invitation to a deep-seated satisfaction and contentment in him through his presence. Follow me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Philippians 4.4. 4. When I stop hearing pages flip, I'll, I'll read it. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let me read that in the way my flesh wants it to be heard. All right. When everything is going your way, rejoice in the Lord. That's not what it says. Hold up. When you get a nice big check, rejoice in the Lord. That's not what it says. Without reservation, without exception, we are told to rejoice in the Lord always. How often? Yes, probably one of the hardest choices we can make is rejoicing in the Lord. And it's not hard because it's a bad thing. Obviously, joy is beautiful. We all love joy. But like I said earlier, the heart is bent towards sin and dissatisfaction. We are so prone to wandering. But this isn't an option in the Christian life. God expects joy, and he commands it. God commands the emotions. So the scriptures are riddled with verses telling us explicitly how to feel. Psalm 31, 23 says, Love the Lord, all you his saints. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. Matthew 5, 44 says, I say to you, love your enemies. Oof. Matthew twenty two thirty seven 37 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Now, we live in an age where feelings and comfort are probably the most heavily guarded things. If anyone says or does anything that is slightly out of line, that ruffles some feathers, well, I mean, we've seen all the things online. You know, cancel culture, people getting removed off of places, people losing jobs. We see, we see all the things. Now, while God is well acquainted with our sorrows, with our suffering, while he knows the difficulties associated with living in a sinful world, because Christ lived in a sinful world, God isn't asking us how we feel. He's telling us how to feel. The divine command of our Lord in light of Christ's advent is to rejoice in him. Now, there's a song I really enjoy by a group named Solos that's based on this verse. So I'm going to ask you guys a handful of questions that are lyrics to that song. And I want you to respond, rejoice in the Lord. Everybody got it? Okay, cool. What do you do when you have no money? What do you do when you break a nail? 
When someone cuts you off in traffic? What do you do when it's just not your day? We are commanded to rejoice in the Lord because he's worthy of it. In our ugliness and sin, we lose sight of what is true and beautiful. God's good and gracious command calls us to keep in sight what is good at all times. We can think of rejoicing abstractly, but God outlines some simple ways we could find joy in him. Let's consider Ecclesiastes 9.7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. To put it simple, go eat a good meal. We are all well acquainted with the feelings associated with eating a good meal. When we eat those meals, let's remember that that's an opportunity to rejoice in the Lord. Here's another one. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Probably wondering why that's a verse that invites us to joy in God. Go outside, especially with how the weather has been, especially with the fact that most of our jobs are indoors. Let's go outside. Let's enjoy God's creation. It's an amazing time to relish in all that God has done. And my final suggestion for an opportunity at rejoicing in the Lord is getting in his word. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So the NIV puts it, refreshing the soul. So the idea is that we are reinvigorated. We are given life again. If you've ever been outside on a hot day, working a couple of hours, had a nice drink of water, you know what refreshing feels like. That's what God's word does for our soul. God has given us an infinite amount of opportunities to rejoice in him. All we have to do is answer his call. So to close, Christ has offered us an unassailable joy through him and his first advent. Sorrow and joy are both experiences in the Christian walk as a result of living in a world that rejoices in things that bring sorrow in the Christian's heart. Yet, the joy found in Jesus is one that cannot be taken from us, cannot be taken away. A joy that comes as a result of being granted access into God's presence. We can pray and be heard. And we, can, we are given the divine privilege of being able to follow his command to rejoice in the Lord. <laughs>